by a show of hands, uh, how many of you are still in your uh, pajamas? Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I thought. Uh, and uh, all of this uh, reminds me of uh, a time in uh, college when I was playing football. Uh, our uh, head football coach was encouraging all of us guys uh, to, uh, to attend church somewhere. Now, he didn't really care where we went. He just wanted us to attend somewhere. And I remember uh, one of my teammates... Uh, who was uh, not spiritual at all. He just raised his hand. Coach, uh, is it okay if I watch mine on TV? Uh, and uh, even my my football coach at that time said, no, that's not church. Uh, and so uh, while uh, while this is a blessing uh, to be able to uh, to, to reach you through it, uh, the medium of modern uh, technology and just have the, the opportunity to come together uh, and study God's Word, um, this uh, this is not the same as church, uh, and uh, I I hope and I pray that uh, that you all, uh, just like I do, have a, a longing to regather. Uh, I already miss uh, seeing everyone. I already miss uh, hearing you all sing in worship together with our Lord, uh, or singing to our Lord, and uh, I, I long uh, to regather, and it uh, it breaks my heart, uh, even as uh, as Jacob was. Mentioning just our our plans for for Good Friday and uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, at this point seemed to be that we will need to to, to live stream. It just breaks my heart that that we will have to do that uh, this year, uh, as those are our days to to come together to worship uh, Jesus uh, for all that He has done for us in going to the cross and all that He has accomplished on our behalf and in rising from the dead. And so, uh, but uh, I am. I'm thankful for this time to be able to, to come and, and worship uh, our Lord uh, through the study of His Word uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned uh, last week, we're going to take a little bit of a break from our study in uh, the Gospel of John. And uh, I would ask that you would open up with me uh, to Romans chapter 12 uh, this morning. And uh, as you are uh, turning there, in some of my uh, conversations with uh, with other uh, pastors and kind of uh, in the the pastoral realm uh, right now, and for, for many years, there uh, has been a lot of discussion uh, about uh, the idea of, of needing to make God's Word uh, relevant to our modern culture. And the thought behind that uh, is really uh, this, uh, the, the, the question of how can an, an ancient book uh, have anything meaningful to say to us now in the 21st century? As we look at the Bible, you know, it was written over the, a period of a thousand years uh, by up to to 40 uh, men. Uh, and uh, how can a, a book where the, the newest part of the, this book that we are gathering around this morning, that, uh, the, the most recent part of it was written nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so how is it uh, that that this book can have anything relevant to say to us in the 21st century. Uh, and and uh, kind of a, along those lines, many pastors uh, feel like the Bible isn't relevant to today and that they have to, to, to really work and to labor to make it relevant. Uh, and uh, their idea of making it relevant is to really kind of change the ideas and the, the wording and really changing some of the, the teaching in the Bible uh, to make it palatable, to make it acceptable and understandable to our our modern culture. And I'm all for making it understandable. I think the preaching and the proclamation of God's Word has to accomplish that. Uh, 
But but I think that this idea that we have to make the Bible relevant, I think it's it, it's going uh, askew because I don't I don't need to to stand up here and make the Bible relevant. The Bible already is relevant because it was uh, given to us by a holy God, an infinitely wise God, as uh, Bruce uh, talked to us uh, earlier. Uh, and he has communicated to us in such a way that all that we need for life and godliness is found here in its pages. Uh, and uh, Hebrews speaks about the word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Uh, and, and that's what we need to see and understand. The Bible is always relevant. Uh, and uh, But you might... Uh, you might test my claim this morning and say, okay, Pastor Thomas, if you are saying that the Bible is relevant for today, even though it was written uh, 2,000 years ago and parts of it over 3,000 years ago, uh, if the Bible is still relevant today, then what does it have to say about how we are called to live in response to the coronavirus? Right? If, if, I'm, if my thesis is true that the Bible is always relevant, what does it have to tell us? What does it have to, to teach us? What wisdom does it hold about living in quarantine, living through a pandemic in the 21st century? Well, uh, and, and what I'd like to, to look at is uh, these two verses in Romans chapter 12 that are going to be, what I would say, extremely applicable, extremely uh, relevant to uh, what we are facing exactly right now in our time and in our culture. Uh, but uh, before we, we jump into uh, Romans 12, I want to give a little bit of a, an overview of the, 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 the big picture of Romans, because that's going to help us when we get to Romans 12. And, and so Romans is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. Uh, there is no greater explanation, there is more, no more thorough explanation of the gospel than what we see in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, and uh, you kind of thumb through uh, the letter, starting at the beginning. The first 17 verses in chapter 1 kind of serve as an introduction. Uh, and Paul lays out who he is, and he's writing to uh, the church in Rome, and he explains why he's writing. And then he begins uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. He begins to explain... Uh, man's need for the gospel, that, that we need God's righteousness because of how sinful we are, because we uh, live in rebellion against the one who has created us, who's given us life and breath and everything. Uh, and so we have a need for the gospel, a need for God's righteousness. And then uh, in Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 21, uh, all the way through Romans chapter 5, verse 21, uh, Paul then explains what God has done in response to our sin, how he seeks to, uh, to justify us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we could call that the provision of God's righteousness. That, that is the, the heart of the gospel, that, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and then died a, a sacrificial death on our behalf and then rose from the grave uh, on the third day, uh, showing that he conquered death and sin. Uh, and that's justification. And then, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, through the end of chapter uh, 8, 
uh, is all about the demonstration of God's righteousness. If we are justified by faith, then God works in us and through us in what we call sanctification, and he makes us more and more like his son, uh, Jesus Christ. And so we have condemnation, justification, sanctification, and then... Uh, Romans uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 kind of backtrack a little bit, and then they shift gears, and they begin to talk about Israel uh, in God's righteousness. How has God interacted with Israel? And that pertains directly to uh, what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8. And so that is Israel's history in God's righteousness. And then uh, the section that we're going to be kind of parachuting down into uh, this morning uh, it begins in chapter 12, verse 1, and then it goes uh, through chapter 15, verse 13. Uh, and this, this portion we could call uh, the behavior of God's righteousness. This is the application of the gospel. So the Apostle Paul spends uh, tw- 11 chapters talking about the gospel uh, and with all of its uh, theological uh, truth. Uh, again, if we have to know who God is, we have to know who we are, we have to understand what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then after we understand all of that, then the Apostle Paul says, okay, now here's how you are called to live in response to those theological truths. Uh, And uh, if you're there with me in Romans uh, chapter 12, the first two verses are going to give an overall summary of this entire final section uh, of... uh, of this letter to uh, the Roman church. and uh, So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, in verse 1, Paul's going to, to give a request formula. It's really it's a command, but he, he's going to appeal to them. And he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this is the idea. Because of all that God has done for us in the gospel, we are now called uh, corporately as a church. It's not a singular you, uh, but it's a, it's a y'all. I appeal to y'all, therefore, brothers, uh, that we as a, as a church body, as the, the church in Rome, they were to give themselves in worship, to live a, a life that is holy and acceptable to God, uh, that is what they are now called to do in response to the gospel. Uh, and then Paul clarifies uh, with a contrast in verse 2 of, of what that looks like. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, how is it that we are called to uh, to uh, offer ourselves up as a, uh, a spiritual worship to God is to uh, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by by the Word of God, so that we become more and more like Christ. And again, that's hitting on truths that the Apostle Paul introduced us to uh, in the first eleven chapters. So, uh, verses one and two in chapter twelve summarize uh, this whole entire application of the gospel that we're going to be looking at, and then uh, verses three through eight. Uh, Paul begins to to speak about uh, instructions about spiritual gifts. And he says, hey, if you have this gift, then you're called to serve in this way. And then if you have this gift, you serve in this way. And uh, we won't read through that that section, but uh, the the Apostle Paul is saying uh, he's guiding specific giftedness in the church. He's directing individual believers of, hey, if you function in this gifting, you 
fulfill and edify and build up the body uh, according to your gifting, right? Uh, but, the, but the portion that I want to look at this morning uh, is uh, verses 12 to, to 13, uh, but this little paragraph and uh, really verse 9 and, and following uh, is not going to be addressed to individuals in the church with only particular gifts. Uh, these, these commands that we're going to look at this morning are for every believer, regardless of their spiritual gifting, uh, regardless of uh, how the Lord ha- has gifted you to build up the church. Every single believer is called and expected to do these things. Uh, and so read along with me uh, in uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Paul says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Now, in these uh, two verses that we're going to look at this morning, again, verses uh, 12 and, and 13, Paul is going to give some specific instructions uh, concerning how the, the church in Rome, how every single one of the, the believers in the church in Rome were to practice love in their everyday lives. Uh, and these specific intru- instructions are not just something that's embedded in the first century uh, they, they are still uh, spiritual truths that are relevant and applicable to us today. Uh, and indeed, they are still commanded of each and every one of us in the church today, regardless of our spiritual gifting. This is the life of the normal Christian uh, for those who live in the first century or those who live in the 21st century. Uh, and again, the big relevant question on everyone's mind today is how should I respond to the coronavirus? What should I do? What is the Lord calling me to do uh, in what seems like an unprecedented time? But as we're going to see, even in uh, March of 2020, uh, God's Word has much to say, has much to, to tell us concerning how we are to live in light of this pandemic. And as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see Five specific commands uh, concerning how we are to practice love in our everyday lives. Uh, whether there is a, uh, a plague or everybody in the world is healthy. Uh, whether uh, we are at wartime or at peacetime. These are spiritual truths that, that we need to, to follow and abide by, to obey at all times. And this is how we are called to demonstrate uh, and practice love towards one another. And and now each of these commands that we're going to look at today is, comp- is accompanied by a, a specific area. He's going to say, in this area, do this. Uh, in this area, do this. And that's going to be how I'm going to kind of word my, my points this morning. And I'm going to kind of follow the word order in the Greek because it's, it emphasizes particular things first. Uh, and uh, these commands that we're going to look at, again, there's five specific commands, but the, the commands are, are given to us in an unusual way. Normally in the Greek, a command is given uh, using an imperative, but these commands are given to us in a, using a Greek participle, an I-N-G word. Uh, and what that communicates to us is that these, uh, each one of these commands could be better translated as always this, of always be doing this. 
Uh, and these are always commands, not sometimes commands. And that's what we have to, to understand uh, from the very beginning regarding all the commands that we're going to look at this morning. But uh, five specifics here. Uh, and the first one uh, is found at the beginning of verse 12. Uh, and it would be this, that in hope, uh, always rejoicing. That is the command, in hope, always rejoicing. Uh, and uh, the, the first part of verse 12 in the ESV says this, it, says, it translates it as rejoice in hope. And, and hope is a good starting point, but when we speak of, of hope in our uh, culture, we, we use that term as a subjective uh, projection uh, of uh, the future. Uh, you say, I, I hope that this coronavirus ends quickly or ends soon and I can uh, get out of the house and get back to life uh, as it normally was. But when we say that, I may hope that, but I have absolutely no assurance that that will actually take place. Now, I don't know what is going to happen. I can hope that. That's my projection uh, onto the future. That's subjective. Uh, but but when the, the Bible speaks of hope, and especially when it is a hope that is fixed upon God, which is what this is, uh, hope then fully expects and trusts that the promises of God And then God finally promises the son, and the son icing in the Lord, hoping in the Lord, even when it seems like he isn't there, even when he is not uh, keeping his promises according to, to our timeline. Uh, and so we have to continue to trust and hope in God. And, and biblical hope is connected with faith. Uh, we see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Uh, and, and here in Romans 12.12, uh, 12, pertaining to hope, uh, we are called to always be rejoicing. Uh, uh, to always be in a state of happiness, in a state of, of well-being. The idea of, of our joy is so great that we are straining beyond ourselves. And, and that's the idea, that regardless of our outside circumstances, we... Uh, we will rejoice in hope. And we saw that as we've been uh, reading uh, this month in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in prison. Uh, and and so we see that around midnight, what are they doing? They're singing hymns and they're worshiping God. They're in prison uh, after just being beaten. Uh, and uh, they are worshiping. They're singing and praising God. Again, that is rejoicing in hope. Uh, and that is the idea here, kind of like 
uh, a soda bottle that, that that's shaken up and then opened, uh, what's going to happen? It's going to it's going to spray and burst everywhere. That's how we should be with hope uh, within us. If if we are Christians, this is what we are called to, because we hope and we trust in the steadfast promises of God. Uh, as as Christians, you could say that we are called to be eternal optimists. Uh, and now I know our, our our world and our culture kind of gets annoyed with eternal optimists, right? And some of you might be those kind of pessimists uh, where you're like, you get grumpy when someone is always looking on the bright side. You're like, hey, stop that. I'm trying to trying to be grumpy right now, right? And misery loves company. Uh, and uh, you could define an eternal optimist as a person who never ceases to give up hope in something that they believe or a person who continues uh, to believe in something or a positive outcome until the end of time. Uh, and... Uh, and that is what we are called uh, to be. We are called to be eternal optimists. Not because we just know uh, innately that, oh, everything's going to work out, but because of the character of God, because we know who He is and what He has promised. Uh, and, and what does eternal optimism sound like in our circumstances? Well, well let me just quote this from uh, a 19th century pastor named uh, J.C. Ryle. He, he says this. He says, If sickness in a wicked world, can help to make men think of God and their souls, then sickness confers benefits on mankind. All right, there's an eternal optimist to say, man, sickness, uh, pestilence, plague, viruses, uh, all of those things, they, they bring heartache and misery to us. But he's saying the, the goodness that comes from that is it gets people uh, to think now, it gets people to think about uh, the brevity of life and the existence of God and why are we here. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you all have begun to, to wrestle with those things. Right? You begin to, to really ask yourself those questions of what am I pursuing? What should I be pursuing in life? Am I pursuing the right things? Uh, and, and we need that type of examination. And we need not just that examination because that type of examination can lead to despair. Uh, but we need that eternal optimism. We need to rejoice in hope. And and what would happen if we had that kind of attitude, that kind of optimism that J.C. Ryle had in the 19th century? Now, what if we had that type of attitude in the middle of this pandemic, where instead of growing fearful, instead of uh, growing uh, worried or anxious about the virus or the economy or uh, how many supplies of food we have or how much toilet paper we have stocked, now, what if we rejoiced over the gospel opportunities that God might be bringing to the surface in our conversations in our everyday life? Now, what if we rejoice over uh, the good that all of this could bring rather than growing anxious and fearful? But I know uh, that many of us might be struggling to rejoice these days. And I know that if we are not rejoicing in hope, right? If we're not doing one, we're probably doing the other. But what is the other? Well, if we're not rejoicing in hope, I would, would venture to say we might be drowning in despair. Uh, and uh, if that is where you are right now, then, then a question that we face is, is, how do I swim back to the surface? If I feel like I'm drowning in despair, uh, if all of the, the implications of this pandemic and and what might happen in worst case scenarios, if all of that is weighing me down to the surface. Well, 
Now, anyone who has uh, taken a swim in deep waters knows that if to to find something solid and to push yourself, to launch yourself upwards towards the surface, right? That is the fastest way. If I can propel myself, uh, I will do that. But we need something solid underwater to push ourselves off from. Uh, and and our launching pad as Christians that gets us to the surface is always the gospel. Uh, it is always the, the truths that Paul laid out for us uh, in Romans 1 through 11. Uh, that, yes, I was a sinner, but yes, Christ has saved me. He has died in my place. He has lived and died to save sinners. Uh, and, and these are the truths uh, that, that are going to propel me back to the surface in hope. That if, if God uh, has sent his son to die for me, he's not then going to lose track of me and let me perish. That's the end of, of Romans chapter 8. Uh, but we, we have to know and believe the gospel uh, if, we, if we're going to have any type of a foundation underwater. Right? Uh, we have to know and believe the gospel. Uh, before we are going to be able to not only just obey this command of rejoice in hope, but really any command. We can't obey any command if we don't first embrace and understand the gospel. I love what uh, J. Gresham uh, Machen says about this. He says, what I need first of all is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not direction for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Uh, and again, that's that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has done in this letter to the Roman church, right? He had 11 chapters of theology, and now he's going to spend three chapters of saying, okay, now here's the implications. Now, now that you understand who God is and what he has done to save you, now you need to live in this way. Uh, and we need to, to return to the gospel early and often, each and every day. Uh, and... And, and there's so many gospel truths that the Apostle Paul laid out for us earlier in this book that we could we could call uh, gospel motivations. And as I we look at each of these commands this morning, these specific commands, I want to look at hey, what is the gospel motivation that helps me to obey this command? Because again, there's there's times where we don't want to obey, right? If we're, if we're being honest, there's times where we kind of dig our heels in and we don't want to submit our lives uh, to the lordship of Christ. Uh, but then in those moments, what do we need to think about? How do we need to remind ourselves? How do we coach and speak to our hearts so that we uh, move from disobedience to obedience? And again, it's going back to those gospel truths. Because when we're disobeying, we're drowning. Uh, how do we shoot back to the surface? Is launching ourselves off of the gospel. And so, so what gospel truths in Romans uh, are there to, to lift us upward so that we might rejoice in hope? Well... Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, of That is our hope, and we can rejoice in that. Uh, that even all of the other circumstances in life, we are still right with the Lord. Uh, we are still justified. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, additionally, uh, if we are found to be in Christ, we have peace with God, and there's no condemnation. There's nothing that anyone else can say uh, to God about us that will change his mind, right? Because Christ's righteousness has been placed upon us. It's been traded. Uh, additionally, moving outside of Romans, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay? Every single blessing that we have in the heavenly realm, which we don't uh, always remember, we don't always think about, every single one of those blessings has come to us uh, in Christ and through the, the gospel. And again, those are the things that we need to remember. Those are the things that we need to launch off of to propel ourselves back to we feel like we are uh, drowning in despair. Uh, and uh, always rejoicing in hope is then the starting point for the commands that are going to, to follow in these verses. Uh, and, and hope is not an end in and of itself. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, the, the great Christian thinker from uh, the Middle Ages, said this, that hope gives birth to love and activity. Uh, and uh, uh, always rejoicing in hope is then a demonstration of our love for Jesus. Again, of our trust in uh, all that he has done for us and the trust in all that God has uh, taught us about himself. Uh, and uh, that is the, the first specific command uh, given to us here. That we are to rejoice in hope. or in hope, always rejoicing. And the second uh, is found in the uh, chapter 12, uh, you could say that the second portion there, uh, and the ESV translates that portion, uh, saying, be patient in tribulation, but the point that I have would be this, that in tribulation, uh, always enduring, that is the command, in tribulation, always enduring, uh, and uh, the, the word for tribulation there has the idea of something being pressed uh, or being squashed, uh, and uh, the word refers uh, specifically to uh, affliction or distress that comes upon us from outward circumstances. Okay? It refers to, to pressure in the physical sense, and, and Greek medical textbooks uh, use this word to describe the human pulse, uh, that pressure inside of us that, uh, is how they use this word. Uh, and this word for tribulation encompasses every uh, outward trial that we might face in life. And that So it's used of persecution, it's used of... Uh, imprisonment, it's used of plague and pestilence, all of these things uh, fall under this category of tribulation in this life. Any external circumstance that, that pressures us uh, from the outside. And, and when we face tribulation, we are commanded here to always endure. Uh, and again, the ESV says be patient in tribulation, but there's a lot more to this word than just be patient. The, the NASB translates it as persevering in tribulation, which I like a little bit better. Um, and this word for be patient or persevering has the idea of, of endurance, of, of standing your ground, of holding out. Uh, and it's actually a compound word uh, in the Greek where it takes a preposition meaning under, uh, and the, the Greek verb meaning uh, to remain or to abide. And the idea is that you abide under uh, the trials that you abide under, you endure, you remain under uh, tribulation rather than fleeing, rather than faltering. And, and this is a courageous endurance. And uh, endurance in the midst of tribulation is a, is a virtue. Uh, this is something far greater than patience. Patience can be passive, but this is always active. This is something that we have to, to strive to do. Uh, and uh, true endurance uh, in tribulation is motivated not by by external public opinion. True uh, endurance uh, in tribulation is going to be motivated uh, out of an internal love 
for Christ and the honor that he deserves. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm currently listening to a, a biography of a, a Civil War uh, general known as uh, Thomas J. Jackson. He's better known as Stonewall Jackson. Uh, and he gained his nickname in uh, a battle because another general looked at him uh, and said, there's Jackson standing there like a stone wall. Like He, he was given this nickname because of his, uh, tremend- uh, his calm demeanor on the battlefield. When everything is just chaos, he was so calm. And uh, what's, what's amazing is how his faith and his trust in God was really the foundation of his calm demeanor. He said this, He says, I am just as safe lying in my bed as I am on the battlefield. Uh, And and the idea that he was safe until the Lord was done with him. uh, That there was no no particular uh, time uh, where uh, he uh, would not be in the hands of the Lord. And so he was in the hands of the Lord uh, when he's lying in his bed. And he's in the hands of the Lord uh, as he is... Uh, on the battlefield, uh, and he knew all of his days uh, were going to be guided and directed by God, and I was just amazed by uh, his trust in the sovereignty of God over all of life. Uh, and uh, we, we can be sure that in in this life we will have tribulation, right? John sixteen thirty three. Jesus promised that, right? One of the promises of Jesus that we didn't wish was true, uh, that in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, and, and so we need to prepare ourselves for it. Uh, but, but Jesus says in John 16, he, he says, Hey, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Uh, and, and that is what gives us hope in the, in the middle of tribulation. That is what helps us to endure. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, uh, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Uh, and indeed, we might feel uh, afflicted in every way. We might feel perplexed, but then uh, how is it that we can echo what the Apostle Paul has said? How can we uh, say with him uh, that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, that we are uh, perplexed, uh, but we are not driven to despair? Uh, and again, that goes back to the, the first command that we saw uh, and that was to, to rejoice in hope, right? Our hope is found in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Uh, and hope and endurance are always uh, interwoven together in Scripture. Uh, and we see this here in Romans 12. And if you just flip back uh, a couple pages in your Bibles, back to Romans chapter 5. Uh, this is what we see beginning in verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And there you have uh, our gospel motivation. Why should we endure uh, in the face of tribulation? Why is it that when we feel like we're being 
pressed and squished, uh, that we should continue to, to look to God in hope and in faith. Uh, it's because God has given us His Spirit to dwell within us uh, and to, uh, as, again, as Bruce talked about earlier, to seal us. And again, this is, this is something that the Apostle Paul has already taught and written to the Romans at the, the end of Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse uh, 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress uh, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Indeed, that gives us the hope to endure, right? Uh, that, that the Spirit's uh, residing in us uh, secures us. That there is nothing that is going to be able to remove us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that gives us hope, because as we are called to to persevere, as we are called to endure in the midst of tribulation, sometimes we grow weary, we grow faint-hearted, we're like, I don't know if I can do this. But we know that the Spirit is there inside us to strengthen and sustain us in the middle of these trials and to carry us through. That we are called to persevere and the Lord makes us secure. And that is what gives us the hope. That is the, the gospel motivation uh, of what we are called to do. God is working right alongside uh, us uh, to accomplish. Uh, and yeah, that, that is what we are, are called to do. Okay, first rejoicing in hope, and then to always endure in tribulation. And those are the first two specifics. And then thirdly, what we see at the end of verse uh, 12 in Romans 12 uh, is uh, the ESV translates it as uh, continue or be constant in prayer. And what I've said, my this third specific is that in prayer, always persisting. In prayer, always persisting. And when it comes to prayer, uh, we, we are commanded uh, to continue in it. Again, the ESV, be constant, or what I said is to to persist in it. Uh, and the idea of being constant is really the idea of being devoted to something, uh, to to be busily engaged in uh, a particular activity. And we are called to persist in prayer, to make it a part of our everyday lives, and uh, each and every day spending time in prayer, but not just uh, spending one particular time in prayer and then forgetting about God, but we're called to, to pray throughout the day and to, to pray uh, without ceasing, again, to be constant in prayer. And, and prayer is one of our highest objectives and one of our greatest blessings uh, as a Christian. Uh, and if you think with me back to that uh, swimming analogy, right, if, if we think about treading water, that, that persevering in tribulation, we can think about it, that's, key, that's keeping our, uh, our head above water, right? We're keeping afloat, we, we have our, our arms and our legs moving, trying to to tread water, uh, to keep afloat. 
Uh, and so persevering in tribulation is staying on the surface, but continuing in prayer is that, that movement of our arms and legs uh, underneath the water that actually keeps us on the surface, right? Uh, and, it, and so it's actually the, the prayer that keeps us uh, and makes us able to stay on the surface, that, that enables us to, to abide and to remain under uh, tribulation. Uh, and so uh, what's amazing, if you think about it, if you're trying to, to tread water and you stop moving your arms and legs, what's going to happen? You're going to fall like a rock. Uh, and uh, that's, that's typically what happens to me when I'm in water. If I, if I stop moving, I, I just drop. Uh, and, and again, many of us feel right now, or maybe there's a circumstances that even prior to this, you felt like you were drowning. Uh, that you were in despair, that, that circumstances uh, were were too much, and and I would just say that usually we we feel that despair, we begin to sink in the water because we're not praying, because we we stop doing what will keep us on the surface. Uh, we no longer turn to the Lord in prayer, but we we turn to other things, either to to numb ourselves or to escape. Uh, our circumstances and the trials that we are facing, and uh, came across a really convicting quote from John Piper. Uh, he says, "Prayer as a relationship is probably your best indicator about the health of your love relationship with God. If your prayer life has been slack, your love relationship has grown." convicting statement and uh, again, it's, uh, it's amazing that, that this command to be in prayer persistently continually is it's often repeated in the New Testament okay, Luke uh, chapter 18 1 Jesus tells a parable and it says that he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart now Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 this is the what, what enables us to put on the, the full armor of God uh, is praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And it's interesting to think about, why, why is it that God gives us that command so many times? Right? Why does he keep uh, giving that to us over and over again? And I think it's because we're, we're slow to listen. Right? Right? We struggle with this command to pray without ceasing. And I, I, again, I've never met someone who has said that they spend way too much time in prayer. I've never had that said to me. You know, I, I spent uh, too much time in prayer today, and that uh, that's the reason for something not being done. Like, I've never had that happen. Uh, but I have known a lot of people uh, that say, I don't pray enough. Uh, and uh, I know I always feel that way. At the end of my prayer time, there's always like so many more things to that still need to be lifted up to the Lord. There's so many more people to, to pray for and issues that, that need uh, wisdom and guidance. And it's just always, I, I feel like my prayer list is always far longer than what I can get to. 
Again, John, John Piper says this again. He says, Nothing is more vital than prayer in Christian existence, and few things are more vulnerable to neglect. Again, nothing more vital, uh, and, and few things are more vulnerable to neglect. Uh, and uh, indeed, when we have moments of downtime throughout our day, which we all do, uh, the clear command of Scripture, what we see here, is that when we have those those downtime, those little moments throughout the day, God would say, hey, use those moments to direct your heart back to Him. Right? To, to lift up uh, our, our hearts in prayer to Him. That would be what it looks like to pray without ceasing, right? To be persistent in prayer. But what's, what's amazing now is what, uh, what do we now do with those little moments of time? Right, whenever we have a free moment throughout the day, what do we typically do? Yeah, we're, where's, where's my phone? And then in that moment, if we don't know where my phone is, okay, where, I'm start to panic a little bit. But in those moments now that should have been reserved for the Lord, we turn uh, to technology, we turn to distraction. Uh, and, uh, Tony Ranke, the author of uh, the book Competing Spectacles, which was... Now, a book I was recommending to you all back in January. In that book, he says this. He says, To pray without ceasing is not a neglect of daily duties. Uh, it is not multitasking with attention split between God and work. Praying without ceasing claims the momentary transitions in our day, the rare empty moments of silence, and turns our attention on God himself. Moments now plundered and carried off by digital media. And, and I would say, as, as Christians, we have to, to battle that urge for distraction. We, ha- we have to, to change that habit of constantly going to our phones uh, with every moment of downtime. And we need to reorient our priorities. We need to reorient our hearts. We need to build new habits uh, that lead us to pray to God in those moments. Uh, and that is what we are called to do. And, and I would say again, of this time when we are uh, scattered as a church and not seeing one another face to face, what if we really committed to pray with and for one another this at this time? Now, what if we really committed to, to praying with one another, uh, sending one another prayers through text message or arranging phone calls or you know, doing uh, FaceTime meetings, and we're, you know, we're thinking through what all that looks like for our, our growth groups. But what if we made a diligent effort uh, to pause and to, to pray and to, to seek out ways to pray with and for one another so that even while we are scattered, now what happens when we pray with and for one another? Our hearts are drawn together. Uh, and so even at this time of separation, we can grow closer uh, and more intimate with one another if we just spend time together in prayer. And again, uh, you might say, what is the gospel motivation for this? What, what should lead me to be constant in prayer? And again, there's two, two verses in Romans chapter 8. Again, things that uh, the Apostle Paul has already talked about here in this letter to the Romans that would motivate us to prayer. Number one... Is seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, that uh, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is praying for us. Romans 8, 26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. 
for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we should pray. If the Spirit of God is praying on our behalf, shouldn't we also pray? And then secondly, Christ is praying for you. Christ is praying for us. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Of who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Uh, And that is what we see. Shouldn't that motivate us to pray? If two members of our triune God are praying on our behalf, shouldn't that motivate us to pray for one another just a little bit? What a gospel motivation that is. We are called to rejoice and hope to endure in tribulation to persist in prayer and then fourthly to the needs of the saints we are called to always be contributing and that's at the beginning of verse 13 in Romans chapter 12 and the the Apostle Paul the the ESV translates it in in this way it says contribute to the needs of the saints and uh this command begins to, to shift gears a little bit uh, and uh, moves us from uh, an, our inner relationship with God to uh, our external outward relationship with other believers uh, in the church. Uh, and as we've been reading in the book of Acts this month, you, you might have noticed uh, how the early church cared for one another. That's something that always uh, stands out to to us as we read in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, that they had all of these things in common and they gave freely and joyfully to, to, to care for other people in the church and, and to ensure that needs were being met. And that was awesome. Uh, but I also uh, think at times we, we romanticize the early church and we love Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, but we forget that the very first church conflict in Acts chapter 6 was about this very thing. Right? And Acts chapter 6, the, uh, the Greek widows weren't being cared for in the same way that the Hebrew widows were being cared for. Uh, and so it needed to, be, to, to have some attention given to it by the apostles, and they established the deacons. And, uh, but as we see and continue to read in the New Testament, beyond just the book of Acts, we see uh, a pattern, a series of commands in the epistles uh, that show us that as a church body, we are called, we are commanded to contribute to the needs of the saints. And sometimes that looks like uh, meeting the needs of the saints in our local church, right? First Timothy 5, and caring for widows, that we should be able as a church to care and provide for the widows among our congregation. Uh, and sometimes uh, contributing to the needs of the saints means beyond our local church, and it means uh, contributing to the needs of other Christians in other uh, parts of the world. And we see that uh, in Second Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9, where uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, but he's talking about how the, the Macedonians uh, gave sacrificially uh, to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, that's what we, sometimes meeting the needs is, is local and sometimes it's global. Uh, but uh, again, here, uh, as Paul addresses this area of the Christian life and pertaining to the needs of the saints, we are commanded to always be contributing. And that's the force of all of these commands. Always be doing this. 
the idea of contributing or sharing is the idea of taking an interest in someone else. That when when a brother or a sister uh, in Christ is in need, that you take an interest in them and you are called to to practically uh, care for them, to, to make a practical contribution, to share with them as the Lord has provided for you. Uh, and uh, what's amazing. Uh, just regarding this, uh, again, there's lots of lots of objections. Right? We can say, well, I don't necessarily have uh, resources to get. I may not be able to, and, uh, and I, I I understand that uh, to to a certain extent. But as what's amazing is that the Apostle Paul, as he's writing uh, to the Corinthians in those chapters that I mentioned, Second uh, Corinthians chapters eight and nine, uh, Paul's detailing his interaction with the Macedonians in Second uh, Corinthians eight. Uh, beginning in verse 1, says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And so, and the, 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 these saints uh, in Macedonia, uh, which is kind of over in the region where Philippi is, uh, they, they were giving out of their extreme poverty. Uh, and, and Paul says they were happy to do so. They gave according to their, their means and sometimes beyond their means. So that you don't have to be rich in order to give to others you just need a thankful and a willing heart. Uh, and that's, again, what we see in those two chapters of Paul points to this. He says, that the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so, we are called to give uh, sacrificially. Uh, and we are called to contribute to the needs of the saints as we see those around us in need. But again, why should we do such a thing? What is the gospel motivation? Uh, and what's amazing is also there in Second Corinthians chapter 8, uh, Paul says this, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace our Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ gave up all the riches of heaven. He gave up uh, being, uh, or, or took on flesh, uh, and uh, he gave up equality with God, came down to heaven. He gave himself sacrificially. The rich became poor so that rich, that Christ might move us out of poverty to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, and that is what is called to motivate us. Uh, if Christ has done all of those things for us, how can we do anything less for those that he is calling us uh, to give to as well? Uh, and John 
uh, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and Jesus is speaking to his apostles uh, at the Last Supper. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also uh, are to love one another. Uh, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And again, this this next few months uh, that we are facing right now, we have an opportunity to, to let our love for Jesus be known as in the way that we care for one another. Right? That is the way that we are to communicate our love and affection for the Lord is to communicate to the world by loving one another within the church. Uh, and you know, I firmly believe that over the course of the next few months, we might have many, many opportunities to obey this command. You know, I'm not a prognosticator, but I, you know, just and uh, seeing what's going on, this is a, a great opportunity uh, to to submit this area of our lives to the Lord. Uh, and uh, there might be a an economic depression that comes as a result of kind of this this self-imposed quarantine or this these lockdowns. Uh, things may shut down. Things may be hard for quite some time. Uh, and and first and foremost, let me be clear: we do not fear an economic shutdown. We do not fear uh, a, a depression, and we don't fear those things because our hope is not in money, it's not in our jobs, it's not in our homes, it's not in our possessions. Our hope is in Christ. That's what we looked at last week, right? God, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Uh, and so we don't look to anything or anyone in this world to save us or to secure us. But here's what we need to understand, that if there is a, uh, a depression that comes, uh, that might cost some of us our jobs. Uh, and if that is the case, when that happens, if that happens, are we willing to obey this command? Are we willing to give sacrificially to contribute to the needs of the saints here among us? And the command here is to do uh, exactly that. To practically assist one another regarding the basic needs of life. Food, water, shelter, clothing. Uh, and if times get harder, are we willing to sacrificially give to the benevolent fund, which we mentioned earlier? Uh, are we willing to prepare and send meals and groceries? Are we uh, willing to, to cover uh, the costs of uh, utility bills and rent? Are we How far are we willing to go to, to care for one another? Uh, and uh, even more challenging... I'll say, are we willing to open up our homes to others? Are, are we willing to go uh, to that length? Uh, I let that question linger just a little bit as it, as it leads to the, the fifth and the, the final uh, specific in our passage this morning. At the, the end of verse 13, uh, the ESV says this, uh, and seek to show hospitality uh, in, in my uh, Fifth, specifically, you could say, in hospitality, always pursuing. Okay, always pursuing. And we are called to be hospitable, but what does that mean? And uh, the, the Greek word there is uh, again a, a compound word that literally uh, it puts two words together that, that mean a love for strangers or love for foreigners. Uh, and uh, being hospitable means to receive strangers, to treat them as guests by providing them with lodging, food, and friendship. 
First uh, Peter four nine uh, says, "Show hospitality to one another without grumbling." Uh, Hebrews thirteen two says, "Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware." Uh, and there are new, numerous examples of this uh, in Scripture. Genesis chapter eighteen. Uh, where Abraham shows hospitality to two angels and an angel of the Lord, who is a pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, Job 31, verse 32, as Job defends his innocence, he, he points out that uh, he has shown hospitality to the sojourner and to the traveler. Uh, and in the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to love the sojourner and the stranger who came among them. Uh, and that is a part of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is that, uh, that vivid description of what it really looks like to love uh, your neighbor as yourself and to show hospitality. And uh, just on a, on a practical note, uh, some of you have heard my testimony, some of you have not, but, but I'm, I'm a pastor today for, uh, I'm a, because I'm a believer today. Uh, and I'm a believer today because there was a, a Christian family who opened up their home to me when I wasn't a believer. Uh, they showed hospitality to me, uh, and that hospitality meant so much, and the Lord used that to soften my heart uh, and to get me uh, to read his word, to, to show me that my understanding of, uh, of Christianity maybe was a little bit uh, skewed. Uh, and uh, the Lord is, is calling us to, to show and to demonstrate uh, hospitality. Uh, and as you... If you really read through the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, it sets such a high bar. Like, how can I attain to doing it, all of that, right? Like, I can't afford to take every uh, homeless person or person in distress that I meet along the, the road, uh, and I can't afford to uh, to take them to a hospital to bind up their wounds and then take them to a hotel and leave my credit card uh, and say, hey, anything that they need, just charge it to my card. I can't afford that. Uh, and I don't think you can either. And, and the whole point there is to show us that this is what true hospitality, this is what true love for neighbor looks like. But uh, there's other smaller things that we can do. If you turn over to, to Matthew chapter 25, uh, this is what we what we see uh, there. Jesus speaks of uh, the final judgment. He says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So those are the little things that we are called to do now. Uh, the, the, those small things, but also leading up to the big things of 
showing hospitality, of bringing people into our homes, uh, especially in a crisis. Uh, and, and these are the things that we are called to do. Uh, but again, it, as we're reading in Romans 12, I didn't see any type of a qualifier there. I, it didn't say, in times of pandemic, here's what you need to do. Uh, the idea here is, again, this is an always command. We are called to always be uh, showing hospitality. Uh, and again, the, the ESV uh, translates uh, the verb here. It says, seek to show hospitality. But the, the Greek word is, again, stronger than that. It's the idea of pursuing or striving after. Uh, and in fact, it, it's the exact same word that we see in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 14. So Romans 14 says this, or chapter 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. There's our word. We are to pursue hospitality uh, in the same way that uh, the unbelieving world persecutes us. We are to to chase after, we're to initiate and pursue hospitality towards one another. Uh, Again, what would be the the gospel motivation for this? Well, just thinking about the gospel as a whole. What has God done for us in the gospel? He has saved those who have been spiritual orphans, uh, us, uh, those who were in rebellion against him, his enemies. Uh, God brought us near. We were far off and God drew us to himself. Uh, and then he brought us into his family. He adopted us. Uh, and we are now sons and daughters uh, of God with all of the rights and privileges of sonship. He's brought us into his family. Uh, and again, what greater picture of hospitality do we have than the gospel? Uh, and the gospel itself shows us what radical, sacrificial hospitality looks like. Uh, because again, we were brought into the family of God, and now that's what we are called uh, to, to mimic. Being like Christ is doing all of those same things. And so we've seen these five specifics in this passage. To always rejoice in hope, to always endure in tribulation, to always persist in prayer, to always contribute to the needs of the saints, and to always pursue hospitality. And these are these are commands for all time, and they're not commands just for the coronavirus, uh, and they're not, uh, well, th- these are commands that we should be obeying all the time. And again, as you look through those commands, are those just a little bit relevant for today? Are those a little bit relevant for uh, a pandemic where we are uh, tempted to despair, where we are uh, tempted to to give in and not endure this tribulation, where we are uh, tempted to, to look to uh, the things of this world as our hope rather than turning to the Lord in prayer, when we are tempted to, to hoard and not give to others, and we are tempted to to put a, a fence around our house and keep others out rather than saying, how, do, how can I be hospitable? How can I contribute to the needs of others? These are commands that we are to be obeying at all times. And so, quite honestly, uh, if we as Christians were doing all that we have been called to do, really this, this pandemic shouldn't have impacted us that much, uh, other than not being able to meet on Sunday mornings. Uh, right? Well, we should already have been doing all of these things. So when someone says, oh, now we need to be sacrificial and we need to care for others and all this, we're like, that's how I live every day. That's really how we should respond to this. We should, if we have been faithful in these things already, we shouldn't be faced. But if we haven't been faithful in these things, then we have some changes to make. 
But we have some things uh, that we need to work on, some, uh, some habits that we need to build and some habits that we need to forsake. Uh, and some, maybe some idols within our heart that we need to let go of and repent of, to confess before the Lord. And my hope and my prayer is that we would heed these five uh, specifics, uh, that they would uh, become just a normal, everyday part of our lives, whether there's a pandemic or whether everything is going fine. Uh, and that uh, the Lord would use these current circumstances right now to realign our hearts, uh, to challenge us and to draw Him, draw, draw us to Himself uh, and help us to, to grow in our obedience to Him and our love for one another.